Okay, Erev Tov, good evening, good to see you all. We're back here for Kol Dodi Dofeik, Rav Salavechik's seminal essay on religious Zionism. Now, we got up to chapter 4, the six knocks, and we already finished the first two knocks. In order to understand where we're at, we, we've had a break for a number of weeks. I had three weddings on Wednesday nights. There was a Chazen concert for uh, our dear friend Natan Mashavsky. So let's do a quick review of each of the three chapters that we've seen before this, and then we'll jump right in. Chapter one. So just a little bit of context. Rav Soloveitchik delivers this speech in 1956, eight years after the creation of Medinat Yisrael. This topic, this which was originally a lecture, and then and then uh, and then edited and expanded upon, and, and notes were added to it. David, no reading now. Okay, so like right near the recorder here. <laughs> the, uh, no, yeah, take some out. Okay. The, um, okay, so he's dealing here with the Holocaust, the tragedy of the Holocaust, the miracle of Medinat Yisrael, with a focus on how should we perceive and understand what happened in 1948 and prior to that, how to respond to the Holocaust, how to respond to Medinat Yisrael, and how to build the future of Medinat Yisrael. Okay, that is the ultimate topic that the Rav is trying to deal with. In chapter number one, he deals with the righteous suffering. And he addresses two different, two different modes of being, two different ways that a person addresses tragedy and loss and grief in their life. One of them being a, uh, you know, an existence of fate, the other one existence of destiny. An existence of fate is where a person is passive, they feel like they're a subject, person feels out of control, life is chaotic, and the person in a position of fate will start asking questions. Why did God do this? I want a religious explanation for the existence of evil in the world, for the tragedy that I've experienced, and that's the sort of the path that a person within the mode set of, of the mindset of fate takes. Uh, this the Rub sees as being problematic. He does not think that this is a, in a Jewish way of dealing with tragedy. A little bit more of a Christian way of dealing with tragedy. And uh, according to the Rub, our way is a way of destiny. Okay, And the way of destiny is to act as an object, to be active. The person doesn't ask, why did this happen to me? But what can I do? How can I build? How can I deepen myself? How can I find meaning despite the loss and because of the loss? How can I expand myself? How can I become more wise? How can I live a more meaningful life? It's not why, it's what. The more that a person engages in the why these things happen, the, it, it sort of distracts them from focusing on the what. Okay? And the Rav believes that the halakha, with its active sort of practical way of living, teaches us that the way to deal with crisis and tragedy is one example is to, to, to do chesed. We increase chesed in the world. We increase goodness in the world. And that's again what? What can you do when tragedy befalls you? This is what you can do. And um, that's chapter one. Chapter two, the Rev brings in the story of Eov. And he teaches us that indeed this is the message of the story of Eov. Eov originally dealing with all these theological explanations and answers and rationalizations. And again, that's functioning within the mindset of fate. But ultimately, the message that Eov learns is that he needs to pray for others. He needs to enter a chassid community. He needs to think about others as a result of the crisis. And this is an example of an existence of destiny, okay? of choosing how can I respond to this. I don't know why it happened, but I can choose how I respond. 
That was chapter two. Chapter three, the Rav talks about the missing the appointed hour. Okay, missing the appointed hour. And he talks about that sometimes there are messages that God sends us and that we, um, that we need to respond. We need to see the message. We need to understand what God is trying to, uh, to, to, uh, to tell us. And, um, you know, sometimes this can, be, this can be in the form of God sending us a message through crisis or suffering, but also in a positive sense. Okay? And, uh, and so the Rav gives a few examples of the importance of timing. One example is Sancherev Melech Ashur, who the Gemara tells us could have been Mashiach, if not for the fact that he didn't give praise after Hashem wiped out the Assyrian army. Timing matters. Timing is everything. Okay? Another example, when you take your lulav and your etrog and you blow your shofar and you daven shacharit mincha narvit, timing matters. You can't daven mincha at 12 o'clock at night. You can't daven shacharit at uh, 6 p.m. in the evening. Timing matters in halacha, in Judaism. Uh, other example is the difference between Shaul and David. Both Shaul and David sin. Shaul doesn't listen to Shmuel when he tells him to destroy Amalek. David takes Uriah and Bathsheba, okay, kills Uriah and sleeps with Bathsheba. But what's the response? By Shaul, there's this long, procrastinated, sort of hesitant response of, oh, Salah, they made a mistake. By David, Chatati Lashem, I sinned. Immediately, the timing matters. And of course, Shir Hashirim, which is the example the Rav really has in mind, Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, the love song between the Jewish people and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It speaks about the romance, the, the yearning, the searching, the running after, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the love. But it's never consummated. In, the, in the Shir Hashirim, the love is never consummated. They're still running after each other. Because when Hashem is ready to rebuild the relationship with us, we're not ready. And when we're ready, God says, well, I'm not ready right now. So there's this, a little bit of this, this game. And please God, time of Mashiach will be a time when we all, you know, we're on the same page. Okay, we're using the same, uh, you know, I don't know, same, uh, the same Google Map uh, location uh, device, you know, whatever it is. Well, right now we have a problem. Yeah. Because the Jewish world is not on the same page. Well, we're, in, we're we as Jews are not on the same page. It's hard to be on the same page no, with God when we're not on the same page with each other. I mean, literally, because here in, in Eretz Israel, we've just read the Halot. Okay, that, that that's one of the that, that's not exactly what's creating you, you, Jewish divisions. Today, no, but you know, Halot versus I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in in um, in Shoshri, we have a story. The beloved is knocking on the door, and the the raya, the woman is sleeping. She hears a knock in her dreams. Is someone there? She decides to go back to sleep, presses the snooze button, uh, you know, just, oh, I don't want to get out of bed, I just fell asleep. Finally, the beloved keeps knocking, she gets out of her bed, she gets dressed, she goes downstairs, stairs, and what happens? He's gone. He's gone. And so, and so, another missed chance. So missing the appointed hour. And then we get to chapter four, the six knocks. And in this book, in this chapter, the rub, I mean, he, He's got very poetic language here in the beginning, which is worth reading. Eight years ago, in the midst of a night of the terrors of Majdanek, Treblinka, and Buchenwald, in a night of gas chambers and crematoria, in a night of total divine self-concealment, in a night ruled by the devil of doubt and destruction, 
who sought to sweep the lover from her own tent into the Catholic Church. In a night of continuous searching for the Beloved, on that very night, the Beloved appeared. The Almighty, who was hiding in his splendid sanctum, suddenly appeared and began to beckon at the tent of the lover, who tossed and turned on her bed set, beset by convulsions and the agonies of hell. Because of the beating and knocking at the door of the mournful lover, the state of Israel was born. Do you guys want the text? Should I, should I send the text? Or you're able to follow without it? Okay. I'll send it in a bit. Yeah, One second. So what we have here are six knocks. And the title of this, uh, this series is When God Knocks on Our Door. Okay? Contrast to uh, knocking on heaven's door, Bob Dylan. Here, God is knocking on our door, but we'll see Bob Dylan's not wrong, because when he knocks on our door, we're supposed to knock back on his door, okay, as a response. And uh, what he's saying here is the beloved knocked on the door. And the knock on the door is, it's a wake-up call. We are like the, the, uh, the lover who is asleep in her bed. And the beloved Hashem is knocking on the door, and he's knocking. And we're supposed to wake up. And there are six knocks that Hashem gives us. Six knocks, I, I'm just uh, speculating here, it relates to the six million Jews who were killed. Okay, six is a significant number. Okay, but what are the six knocks? So the first knock, let me just send you uh, all the text again. One second. Um, so now we try to understand what are the six knocks. Anyone remember what the first two were? The six knocks. The six knocks, number one, the first knock, the knock of the beloved was heard in the political arena. You know, Israeli students, by the way, study this, this particular part of the text. Can I share you the story? Yeah. That um, a student of the Rav once went to him and said, you know, Rabbi, you should know that they, this, your book, Kol Fake, was included in the Israeli curriculum. Which part, he asks? This part of the six knocks. He says, ah, oh, the main part of the book is the the first few chapters about suffering. That's where the rub feels he was really saying something significant. And it's interesting that we, we focus on the positive parts, the six knocks, as opposed to also the, the harder, more challenging aspects of this. But anyway, the first knock was heard in the political arena. From the point of view of international relations, no one will deny that the rebirth of the state of Israel in a political sense was an almost supernatural occurrence. Both Russia and the Western nations supported the establishment of the state of Israel. So this was perhaps the one resolution in which East and West concurred during the Cold War era. Pointing out from a political perspective, it is miraculous that Medinat Yisrael was created. If we were to have a vote today, should Medinat Yisrael exist or not, then it would probably be, I don't know, 175 to 30 against, okay, based on the, the voting, voting uh, sort of uh, trends in, the, in the, uh, the United Nations, which is a, you know, almost entirely anti, uh, anti-Israel forum. And he, he, I, love, I love this piece. I'm inclined to believe that the United Nations was especially created for this end, for the sake of fulfilling the mission that divine providence had placed upon it. There's no purpose to the UN except for the fact that it created Medinat Yisrael. It appears to me that one cannot point to any other concrete accomplishment on the part of the United Nations. <laughs> we may say the same thing today. Listen, to give them a little bit of credit, they do a lot of uh, refugee and welfare work. They do help people, you know, with food pack, you know, in, in times of crisis. Uh, but we, there are many examples of the spinelessness of the United Nations and their, their different uh, organizations, and uh, especially when it comes to, comes to Israel. And now in each of these six knocks, the Rev always relates it to an incident in Jewish history. So the knock here is... On that night, the king could not sleep. When Achashverosh could not sleep, 
Vayomer lehavi. Right? Let's say for Zerukhanoti, Vayamin, Vayunikot, Nifneam Melech. He remembers Mordechai, save them from Mitan Vateresh. At this night, who's the king, the real king? Hamelech. Hamelech. Right? As we say in Yom Kippur. So it's Hamelech couldn't, couldn't sleep. This is number one in the political realm. Second, the second knock is a military battlefield knock that the tiny defense forces of Medinat Israel uh, destroyed the mighty Arab armies. Okay? I don't, I, it's been deconstructed. Uh, sorry. The, the, the Tom Segevs of the world, the, the revisionists, some of the revisionist hardcore left-wing liberal Zionist historians have tried to deconstruct some, some of this. And Nachon, listen, the Arab armies weren't, didn't have, uh, you know, drones, okay, like, like they, they do now. Okay, they were, they were, yeah, they were disorganized, they were disorganized. Yes, they were but 1%, 1%, okay, but we also had issues between the Irgun and the Lehi and, and the Haganah, and we couldn't get Jews into Israel, and, uh, you know, we also had major, major problems. 1% of Israel's population was killed in the War of Independence. What would 1% be? Okay, if we would take Germany's population today. How many people live in Germany? 18 million. Imagine 800,000 people, okay, dying. Or in America, can you imagine in America, in a war of independence, two point, uh, sorry, 3.4 million people dying? Okay, or if Israel was having a war today, okay, 10 million people living in Israel today? Imagine if, if 100,000 people were killed, okay? Think about those numbers. The Yom Kippur War, how many people were killed? 2,500. War of Independence, 6,000. Okay, so, you know, I hear what you're saying. You know, there, you know uh, some of those, you know, historians have sort of um, questioned some of the revisionism that they did. Um, but uh, there is, listen, the Arabs weren't uh, the most um, organized army in the world. They did, though, hurt Israel significantly. They did manage to capture all of Yudavish Shomron at the time. Uh, they did, um, they, they still, you know, they still hurt us significantly and drew a lot of blood, you know. But it was as a result of our incredible planning and Svahagan Ali Israel. And we also believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was behind us, okay. And we were much smaller in numbers in terms of sheer armory and armor and, and soldiers, no question about it. And this is another example, as he says, of the... Uh, the, as we say in Al-Hanisim, what, what do we say about the numbers in Al-Hanisim? We say a few against the many. A few against the many. And, uh, and he said it, it was really foolish what the Arabs did. Because by fighting against us, they ended up losing. Okay? If they just agreed to the partition plan, Israel would have been a sliver on the coast. Little part of the Negev, I think. A little bit of the Galil. And that's it. Jerusalem would have been an international city. And, but in the end, they decided to fight. Just like Paro's heart was hardened. Paro, by the way, the Jewish people would have just gone out for three days, for a chak. Paro hardens his heart, the Jewish people leave for good. The same thing is true here. Same thing is true of the Israelites wandering in the desert. Mm-hmm. When uh, the spies came back, yeah. and most of them were saying, it's horrible, it's terrible to lay the divine oh. people, and I said, you crying now? I'll give you something, something to, to cry. About. Okay, third. Here's where we get to new material. Page 33, at least in my book here. Third, the beloved also began to knock on the door of the tent of theology. And possibly this is the strongest beckoning. 
I have on several occasions emphasized in my remarks concerning the land of Israel that the theological arguments of Christian theologians to the effect that the Holy One is taken away from the community of Israel, it's right to the land of Israel, and that all of the biblical promises relating to Zion and Jerusalem now refer in an allegorical sense to Christianity and the Christian church were all publicly shown to be false. If you think about it, us being in exile was the greatest proof that the Christians were right. They said, listen, you've been replaced. And here we are, wandering, the wandering Jew, from kicked out of France, kicked out of Germany, kicked out of England, kicked out of uh, the Papal States in Italy, kicked out of, uh, you know, of, of, of Spain, kicked out of Portugal. I mean, there's no end to the wandering of the Jew. This is the great, the suffering of the Jew is the greatest proof that the Christians replaced us. And lo and behold, what happens? We're back. We're back. Okay? And, and therefore, Christianity has a major theological issue with us. The what? The, they're called, still calling for this. Correct. Correct. And um, you know, so this is uh, this is very significant. Um, the uh, what else here in this? Uh, okay. So, this is the oh, right at the end of the piece on page thirty-five. I always have a special sense of satisfaction when I read in the paper that Israel's reaction is not as yet known because today's Saturday and government offices are closed. Or when I read in the eve of Passover an item for the United Press that Jews will sit down tonight to the Seder table in the hope that the miracles of Egypt will return and occur today. Listen, my beloved Knox. That was the third. The fourth, the beloved Knox in the heart of the youth which is assimilated and perplexed. The period of Hester Panim in the 1940s brought confusion among the Jewish masses and especially Jewish youth. Assimilation increased, and the urge to flee from Judaism and the Jewish people reached its apex. Saying, listen, people are running away from Judaism. Who wants to be part of a nation? Which was a, a third of it was wiped out. That is no land, and no way to defend itself. Who wants to be part of this? Youth want to be part of something proud, something powerful, something strong, something mighty, not something weak. And he compares us or the young people, to Yonah. Yonah's running away. Right? He's Boreach Letarshish. And, uh, and he tries to flee God's presence. And he says, now with the, with the advent of Medinat Yisrael, people want to come back. People feel pride. They feel, wow, it's amazing to be a Jew again. Right? What was true in 1948 is even more, was even more true in 1967. Right? 1967, at least Jews in America, I don't know about other places, starting wearing, wearing their kippot in public. Right? 67 didn't just change what happened here in Israel. It's for all of world Jewry. Okay? And, uh, and Jews felt connected to something bigger than themselves. Gave us a sense of, uh, you know, wow, we are, we are living Jewish history. We're no longer, we're no longer just bystanders. Okay? We are, we are, we're in the game. We're players. We're not spectators. We're in the game. Um, okay. Yafe. The um, now I do want to mention that this has unfortunately changed a little bit amongst certain parts of liberal American Jewry. Um, less so here in Israel. Less so here in Israel. But uh, in America, uh, there's a very unfortunate reality where in reform and conservative and reconstructionist and liberal synagogues, they don't really talk about Israel much. Because 
once Israel used to be a great unifier. So one thing that brought the Jewish people together, there's the Holocaust, there was Israel, and, uh, and these brought people together. Today you talk about Israel, you'll get fighting in Shul, which is unfortunate. No, I'm not saying that we agree or everyone always agrees with everything happening in the government. Uh, that's, um, this is before discussion about judicial reforms. This long preceded. This has to do with Jews not feeling connected to the one Jewish sovereign entity that we've had in the last 2,000 years. I, my personal feeling is that it, it doesn't really have much to do with Israeli policy. It has a lot more to do with assimilation uh, on the left in America. Um, you know, um, and it's very unfortunate. It's very sad. And I say this very, you know, I think it's regretful and sad, very sad that this is the case. But today Israel is no longer the pride for young, you know, liberal Jews in America. It, for them, it's something they're ashamed of. And again, I, 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 it's, it's sad to me. It's not something that, uh, I don't say this in a triumphalist fashion. You know, they're wrong and we're right, even though that is what I believe. I, 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 it's sad because I want them to feel connected to Israel. I want them to feel like this is a homeland, a place they can come visit. I want them to know that if they ever needed anything, this is the one place they could always, uh, always call home. And America should continue to be a wonderful place for Jews to live. And uh, I, I want Jews to come here because they want to come here, not because they're afraid, not because they're terrorized, or because of anti-Semitism. I want to choose to come to Midianat Israel and to identify with it. Is that why the Jews in South Africa are running away as well? Coming in, they want to live in England, America, uh -huh. Australia, they're coming here again. Yep, correct. Uh -huh. 25, 50 mm -hmm. plane lines. They said America is Zion. Yeah, that was, but they, but they, but they, but they undid that. No, no, they came back to Israel. Yeah. yeah listen, you know, kudos to them. In the 50s and 60s, you know, many reformed communities and certainly conservative were very supportive of Israel, gave a lot of money, Israel bonds, and for sure, you know. You know, like the, the, I'll give you an example. The, the, for the, I don't know if you know these personalities, but the, you know, the, the Ruth Weisses, Ruth Weisses, professor at Harvard, now retired, and the, uh, the Michael Orens of the world, okay? They grew up in, in conservative America, okay? And they bucked the trend that they're still very incredibly pro-Israel, okay? Uh, in contrast to their congregations where they grew up, which have, you know, gone another path. Um, but they, but they're part of an old the dinosaurs of the conservative movement, and uh, you know who are very supportive of Israel. I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to say that conservative Jews are not. You know, there still are many who are, but their synagogues have emptied out, and it's not like it once was. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, tough. No, but if you go to the mm -hmm. East synagogue, you see how packed. Ten pictures. How packed it is on the, on a Shabbos morning. Yeah, yeah. So um, you've seen pictures on a Shabbos morning. No, these no, days. no. Okay. Myself, no. <laughs> every week. They've got a proper band and they've got everything. Yeah, they yeah. Start to drums to everything there. Yeah. Okay. Tough. The the fifth knock, page thirty-seven. The fifth knock of the beloved is perhaps the most important. For the first time in the annals of our exile, divine providence has amazed our enemies with the astounding discovery that Jewish blood is not cheap. Okay, and this piece, this is fascinating. If the anti-Semites describe this phenomenon as being an eye for an eye, we will agree with them. 
If we want to courageously defend our continued ex- national and historical existence, we must from time to time interpret the verse of an eye for an eye, literally. Eye for an eye. Ayin tacharayin. Which we know in Parshat Mishpatim, in Parshat Emor, doesn't mean literally, if you take out an eye, it will take out your eye. That's how they interpret it. Very good. That's how it's interpreted in Iran. We interpret it based on our Messiah. Uh, someone actually takes out someone else, someone's eye. You have to pay the monetary value of what that eye was worth. Now, that's, the, that's how we interpret it halachically. The Rev is saying yes. But there's got to be a meaning to the pshat. Why does the Torah tell us an eye for an eye to begin with? So ah, he says, sometimes we have to revert back to an eye for an eye mentality. Okay, this is a bit of a, a strong piece here. So many eyes were lost in the course of our bitter exile because we did not repay hurt for hurt. The time has come for us to fulfill the simple meaning of an eye for an eye. Is the Rev suggesting we should take revenge here? Is that revenge? What is he saying? He's saying, he's saying um, effort, uh, focus, response. Exactly, right? I don't think he's saying, oh, just go no. get revenge. But he, what he is saying is, you know, if you're going to hurt us, we're going to hurt you back. Because Jewish blood is not cheap anymore. Okay? And if you mess with a Jew, we, Medinati, so will protect you. And this is the greatest example of this, of course, is? And Tebi. Okay? The long arm of Svahaganavi Yisrael. Those of us who were alive at the time. It must have been euphoric, huh? It was not, it was more than euphoric. We said, it it was, it was the day of the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Really? July 4th, 1976. Wow. I didn't realize the coincidence. all said, Israel gave America the best Independence Day gift ever. Taught them what it means. To defend your country. Wow, that's an amazing. I didn't realize that. It was, was, it, it, was it celebrated in America as well? Yeah. Like, not among Jews. Like, did, did Americans. People realized that this was. <coughs> I mean, it, it, it right. was basically. It, it was. Everybody recognized it was necessary chutzpah. They didn't have the word chutzpah. They didn't know the word, but they knew it was necessary. And they knew it was bold and daring and remarkable. Hmm. And it, was, and it was part of the whole bicentennial celebration. This is what an independent country does. I, I mean, I have, listen, I have a theory, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but um, that the, the moral weakness of the, of the West, that it starts with the acceptance of terror against Israel in the, you know, mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s, um, you know, provoked by the Yasser Arafat to the world. And, and the world gave into that, and the world accepted that. And it's led us to, to where we are today, where, you know, and to quote uh, Rabbi D, uh, you know, who's mourning his, his wife and his, and his two daughters, um, you know, the world just makes an equivalence. Yeah, they're, they're you know, everyone's <laughs> at fault, this side and that side, and, and the world is given into that. And it all started with with Palestinian terror towards Israel, um, and uh, you know, and we see what's happened today. We've lost the will to fight in the West. The West has, has lost the will to fight. Uh, I mean, Ukraine actually is maybe a counterexample, but um, in general, in general, not willing to fight for the core values that, that uh, their ancestors fought for. 
so, so listen to what he says. It was June 27th, 1976. It was close. Okay, close. So he says, of course, <laughs> I am sure everyone recognizes that I am an adherent to the oral law. And from my perspective, there is no doubt that the verse refers to monetary restitution as defined by halakha. However, with respect to the mufti, who was a Nazi or Nazi sympathizer uh, and colluder, and Nasser, I would demand that we interpret the verse in accordance with his literal meaning, the taking of an actual eye. Pay no attention to the saccharine suggestions of known assimilationists, of some Jewish socialists. Okay, don't listen to the socialists, you know, etc., etc., who say revenge is forbidden. He says, and then he goes on, let's just read this piece here. Who stand pat in their rebelliousness and think they are still living in Bialystok at Brest-Litovsk in the Minsk of the year 1905, and openly declare that revenge is forbidden to the Jewish people in any place, at any time and under all circumstances. Vanity of vanities. Okay, what is this referring to? Russian cities where the Black Hundreds carried out pogroms against the Jews in 1905, accusing them of sympathy for the Japanese during the Russo-Japanese War. Revenge is forbidden when it is pointless, but if one is aroused thereby to self-defense, it is the most elementary right of man to take his revenge. Okay, so he interprets revenge here as a form of self-defense. Torah has always taught that man is permitted indeed as a sacred obligation to defend himself, with a verse famous case, Habbaba Machteret in Parshat Mishpatim, if a burglar is caught in the act of breaking in, the Torah establishes the halacha that one may defend not only one's life, but his property as well. Correct. Yafet. And he, then he gives a fascinating example of Abraham and Moshe. Two of our sort of, you know, two of our, our great leaders and founders both took up the sword. The first thing we learn about Moshe Rabbeinu, he kills a mitri. Abraham takes up the sword to fight for Lot against the Sodom and the, the four kings. Okay? And this behavior did not contradict the principle of loving kindness and compassion. On the contrary, a passive position without self-defense may sometimes lead to the most awesome brutality. Says being passive is not, you know, it's not the Jewish way. You could be loving, kindness, and compassionate, and still fight for your right to exist. We don't need to apologize for existing and for defending ourselves, etc. Okay. Um, and the first example of Hashem um, showing that Jewish blood is not cheap is when Hashem smites the Egyptians. Okay. One second. At present, it is necessary not only to convince the dictator of Egypt, Nasser, but the self-righteous Nehru. Nehru was the prime minister of, uh, of Egypt from 47 to 64. India. The for, India, excuse me. The foreign office in London. And the sanctimonious members of the United Nations that Jewish blood is not cheap. Therefore, how laughable it is when they try to persuade us to rely on the declaration of the Regal Powers guaranteeing the status quo. We all know from experience what value can be attached to the pronouncements of the British Foreign Office and the so-called friendship of certain officials in our State Department. Saying we cannot rely on, on the non-Jews to defend us. This is an essential part of Israeli military doctrine. Thank God we live to see the day when, with the help of God, Jews have it within their power to defend themselves. Okay. Um, if I remember correctly, the story 
There's a fascinating book by Yaakov Katz, former editor of the Jerusalem Post, about the destruction of the Syrian nuclear reactor. And it's an amazing story, which doesn't get the, the fanfare and pomp and noise that it probably should, and attention that it probably should. But I remember reading in the book, 1,800 people had to sign non-disclosure forms. They knew that they knew what was that this was going on, and nobody leaked anything. Eighteen hundred people, okay, and so Israel had to do essentially destroy Syria's nuclear, Syria's nuclear reactor without anybody knowing about it, and in a way that Syria wouldn't feel forced to respond, okay. And basically, the most complicated piece was getting the Americans on board, and. Um, you know, uh, you know, when George W. Bush found out about this, or when he was sort of told that it was about to happen, he said something to the effect of, wow, you know, those guys, they have guts. Okay, they, you know, they have guts to defend themselves. That, that sense of that chutzpah, that, that, you know, that fierce, you know, n- notion of, of self-defense, you know, what the Rav is talking about here. Jews, we're not, we're not going to sit by and wait for this to happen. We're going to take out this, this nuclear reactor. Okay, the second one in history the Jews have taken out. And uh, please, God, there will soon be a uh, third. Yeah. Okay, but uh, I don't know. We've got we to gotta pray because it's much more complicated. Okay. So, the sixth beckoning. The sixth beckoning of which we should also not lose sight was heard at the time of the opening of the gates of the land of Israel. A Jew escaping from enemy's land now knows that he can find refuge in the land of his forefathers. This is a new phenomenon in the annals of our history. Up to now, when a Jewish population was uprooted, it wandered in the wilderness of the nations without finding shelter and habitation. Basically, now there's a home for the Jews, a sanctuary, a refuge. And in the first few years of Midianat Israel, Israel welcomed hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of immigrants who were kicked out of Sephardic lands, who, by the way, still need to be compensated for the billions, billions of you know, dollars worth of, of possessions and land that was confiscated by the Arabs when this, when this happened. Okay, over a million Sephardic Jews uh, came because they were forced to leave their, their countries from Morocco and, uh, and Iraq and Egypt and Iran and, and all these different countries. And, uh, and they now have a place to come to, which they didn't have before. Okay? And had Israel been born before the Hitlerian Holocaust, hundreds of thousands of Jews could have been saved from the gas chambers in the crematorium. Of course, you know, the borders of Israel were closed because of the Brits. Um, this is a shame on the British record, but they closed the, the, the Israel, especially during the Holocaust. The white paper. White paper. Um, if I remember correctly, um, and this is referenced on Shabbat, but Yitzchak Levi Herzog did tear up the white paper when it was when it was first announced. Again, it was very symbolic; didn't do anything. White paper was still in existence, but the Jews, you know, tried to get, you know, to get people to smuggle pe- people in, and they did succeed to some degree. But imagine how much easier it would have been to save lives had the borders of Israel been uh, been open to them. That is chapter four. I do want to share with you a piece. Written by the former rabbi of the community that I grew up in, Rabbi Stephen Przanski, uh, B'nai Shirin, Congregation B'nai Shirin in Teaneck. And um, 
he wrote a piece in the most recent or one of the recent Mizrahi magazines arguing that there are, there are a number of new six knocks that took place since the Rav you know, wrote this piece. Anybody want to guess what, it, what were those six knocks? I think water technology. Israel's a water superpower. Okay, the, um, the uh, AI and uh, startup, startup nation, yeah. What else? We mentioned it before, an incident in Tebby. Okay. Uh, 67, you could probably put it in there. Six day war. Even the Yom Kippur war, by the way. I read Michael. Has anyone here read? Um, Michael Oren has a book on 67. Abraham Rabinovich, I think is the name, has a book on 1973. They are both incredible works. If anyone has never read military history, I mean, they're incredible, incredible uh, books. And um, Rabinovich makes the case that the Yom Kippur War may have been a bigger miracle than, Yom Kippur, than the Six Day War. The fact that Israel was able to push back the Egyptians and Syrians after, after they had already invaded Israel. You know, there's a whole story of Koch Tzvika. I mean, you know some of these stories, Koch Tzvika. One has their neck, Tzvika. What's his name? Tzvika, um, I'm forgetting his last name. Guy was like with, I don't know, three other tanks, and he was told to go to the, the front lines. This is already in the Golan, because they had penetrated the Golan. And they see a Syrian tank, they hit it. Okay. The whole night, Tzvika and his little group of tanks are, you know, are trying to hit back at the Syrians, running from tank to tank. One tank gets blown up, they go to the next. The Syrians thought there were tens and, you know, of tanks, Israeli tanks there. And there was literally one guy going back and forth and shooting. They don't know the exact numbers. It's possible he destroyed in that one night you know, uh, 50, 60 uh, Syrian tanks, okay? But more importantly, he stopped them from entering in advance. They could have just run right into Israel, okay? I mean, it's just one example. Uh, Victor Kahalani is another example. Valley of Tears. But these are like incredible stories, miraculous stories. Tough. Now, chapter 5, the obligation of Torah Judaism to the land of Israel. So we get back to the beloved knocking at the door. So we've got these incredible knocks. How should we respond to these knocks? How should world Jewry respond? I mean, if I were to ask you, let's go back to 1956. What is the right response to these six knocks? God's knocking on our door. What are we supposed to do? Hello. What would be the right religious response to all this? So can you answer the call of charity? I'm thinking like an American Jew, because this is his audience. This is his audience, America. Well, the most basic thing is to move to Israel. Get up and come to Israel and help settle the land. He didn't. Okay, so we're going to talk about why the Rub didn't make Aliyah. So, we're going to talk about that. Um, and, but, and no, but, but put, put him but, aside. But That's it, an ad hominem argument. Those, no, those yeah. were post-war years. And um, there was, it, there was an, I mean, the 1950s were an incredible boom time in America. 
Oh no, we could give many good reasons and excuses. No, okay, things, for why Jews didn't. The reasons or excuses I'm stating a fact that the Jews were not about to do that. No, beside there, but he's not just talking to American Jews. I mean, in general, if we're so, you know, how should we have responded? We're so concerned about Israel's, you know, eight-kilometer borders, and that it's not populated enough, and that the Negev is in, uh, you know, we called them the Negev. And the Galil, you know what American Jewry needed to do at this moment? To come and settle the land. Populate. Populate the land. And let me tell you, and again, I'm not judging those of the past. I'm not sure I would have done it myself, but to this day, we are still suffering because we did not complete the task. Right? Remember right, Michael Lauren? It was quite a, quite a, uh, a depressing uh, part of his speech. Remember? He said there are 100,000 illegal Bedouin structures in the Negev. And they rule the Negev. And it's, it's the Wild West. If there are more Jews living in the Negev, and more settlements, and more structure, and more, you know, governance, it would be a different place. The same thing is true with the Galil. Okay? And, uh, and, and uh, you know, we have a weak hold on certain aspects of, of the Shetach, of the country. Okay? Now, we're, we are to some degree to blame. Okay? It's Chata'inu Anachdu... We live, we live in Rana. Like, like we chose to live in the most densely part of part, you know, on the coast, most densely part, the populated part of the country. We didn't choose to live in the Galil, the Golan, Yudav Shomron, the Negev, Eilat. You know, we chose to live in a more comfortable part of the country. Okay, and we got to own that. We got to recognize that. But uh, but this is the this is the reality that we're dealing with. What was our reaction to the beckoning of the voice of the beloved munificence of his loving kindness and miracles? Did we get out of our beds and immediately open the door? Or did we continue to rest like the lover in the story of the Song of Songs? And were we too lazy to get out of our beds? I've washed my feet. How shall I soil them? All the trembling and fear for the geographical integrity of the state of Israel, all the suggestions of our enemies, which are directed at territorial concessions by the state of Israel, and all of the brazen demands of the Arabs for boundary changes are based on only one fact. The Jews have not populated the Negev and established hundreds of settlements there. Had the Negev been settled with hundreds of thousands of Jews, even Nasser would never have dreamed of the possibility of rending it from the state of Israel. Wide and unpopulated expanses constantly and perpetually endanger the tranquility of the state. Torah's already emphasized this notion when it states, you should not be allowed to quickly destroy them so that the wild animals will not overwhelm you. So, I mean, this is, he's just talking about a defense uh, strategy. The fact that the Negev was so open meant that it was very conquerable, okay, to, to Nasser. You lived there. Mitzvah The fact that the Jews have conquered the Negev is not enough. Its settlement is what is important. The great sages Maimonides ruled that the first sanctification of land was not a lasting one because it was the result of military conquest. He's now quoting the Rambam. There are two sanctifications of Eretz Yisrael. One was in the time of Yoshua Benun, which was a kibush, conquering. And when the Jews were kicked out from the land and the temple was destroyed, the sanctity of the land of Israel became nullified at that point in time. But then the Jews came back in the time of Ezra, and they resettled the land. And that resettlement, the Kiddushah Shniyah, Kitsha that still exists today. Okay? And the point that he's making here is that settling the land is more powerful than conquering the land. It's settlement that creates, you become entrenched, you become anchored in the land. 
Um, the same thing that is based on the settlement of the land is simply stated for now and for all time. We are terribly guilty for this gross negligence. American Jewry could have certainly accelerated the process of colonization. Yet why should we examine the faults of others and place responsibility on the shoulders of our non-observant Jews? Let us admit our own faults and confess our own derelictions. Among the Jews of America, Orthodox Jews bear the most blame for the slow pace of the conquest of the land of land through settlement. It was for us, the loyalists of Judaism, to heed the call of blood more acutely and to, to respond to it immediately with extraordinary effort. Okay. Um, so this is, it's our fault, specifically the Orthodox. Okay. And he says the Crusaders came and tried to conquer the lands. And we know that there's this, uh, you know, this promise that the, the land will never be resettled until the Jews come back. Okay? And it's true. Israel was mostly desolate. Not, not entirely. Mostly. For the last 2,000 years. When the Jews came back, we were able to resettle it. There's a, we, there's a connection, a deep spiritual connection between the Jewish people and Eretz Israel. And uh, however, the land of Israel did not betray the Jewish people. It was loyal to them, awaiting redemption throughout the years. Logic dictates then that when the Jewish community was given the opportunity to turn to its lands, which had withheld its treasures from foreigners and stored them for us, the Orthodox Jews should have hastened to perform so great a mitzvah, to plunge with joy and enthusiasm into the very midst of this holy work, the building and settling of the land. However, to our regret, we have not reacted that way. When the desolate one, which longingly waited for us to, from era to era, invite us to come and redeem from her desolation, Etc. Did we respond to the knock? The answer is no. Let us publicly and frankly confess we complain about certain Israeli leaders and their attitude towards the value of our tradition and religious practice. The complaints are justified. We have serious charges against the secondly religious land of Israel. However, are only they to be blamed? And are we as faultless and pure as the heavenly angels? Such an assumption is without foundation. We could have extended our influence and done something to shape the spiritual character of the land if we had but hurried to awaken from our slumber and open the door for the beloved who is knocking. It's interesting how he's like talking in the past almost. So like it's something that happened already. It's in 1956. Jews can still go, right? But he's pointing out that we didn't do enough earlier to set the tone in Israel. It's safe to say, I remember, I've also, I've also pointed out that essentially the end of the destruction of the first temple, when he found the same population come back and that. Exactly. The time of Ezra, only a small population comes back. Uh-huh. You said, you said, I think he's saying you had. Eight years. Nahum. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then he goes out to say something interesting. It doesn't quite transition exactly. He says, and we don't give enough money to Israel either. We give paltry sums in the Orthodox community. Okay. Um, here. When one calls a rich Jew and asks him to give to a just cause, the answers, he answers, I'm going to Florida. And this year, I have decided to stay in a luxury hotel, and I don't have the wherewithal to give you what you requested. What did the scholar tell the king of the Khazars? You have embarrassed me, king of the Khazars. And the king of the Khazars asks him, why aren't you going to Israel? He says, he says you know, Matzati cherpati, you found my shame. Okay? And our saying worship at his holy hill is but the chirping of a startling. Do we not hear in our trembling over the safety and tranquility of the land of Israel on our day the beckoning of the beloved who begs the lover to let him in? He's already been beckoning for eight years and still he has not been properly responded to. Nonetheless, he continues to beckon. To our good fortune, our hand land has become more beautiful. Beloved has not shown the lover any favoritism, but he is compassion for her. The beloved beckoned for only a short moment that night and disappeared. Yet with us, he has exhibited extraordinary patience. It is eight years that he has continued to beckon. Hopefully, we will not miss the opportunity. Okay? Now, just a quick 
idea about Rav Soloveitchik, why didn't he himself make Aliyah? He visited Israel in 1934-35. He does apply for the chief rabbi post of Tel Aviv. Loses to Rav Yitzchak Levi Herzog, as well as to Rav Amiel. Doesn't get the job. And there's a famous line, um, Rav Soloveitchik is the greatest London. Rav Yitzchak Levi Herzog is the, the better posek. And Rav Amiel is the one who should get the job of chief rabbi at Tel Aviv. There's like some line like that. The Rav went around giving shirim in Israel at the time. Rav Tzviyu, the cook, went around to all the places the Rav was giving shirim and followed him around. And he went and told his father, Rav Kook, who was sick at the time, about Rav, the Rav shirim. And he said, oh, this young Salavechik reminds me, he was born in 1903, he's 32 years old, 30, 33 years old. He reminds me of the grandfather of Chaim Soloveitchik in Volnoshin. Okay? That's, that was incredible. Now, so he doesn't get that job, goes back to America, becomes a, a you know, head uh, Rosh Hashiva at YU, especially when it takes his father's position when his father passes away in 41, 42, I think. Rub is offered the position of chief rabbi of Israel, I think in 1959, if I'm not mistaken. He declines. Um, never visits Israel again after 35. Um, he does write a few, there are a few different explanations for this. Number one, he was a busy guy. Okay, he wasn't uh, you know taking an easy life. That was number one. Number two, the easy way out. Number two, he um, he felt he had an important job in America to build American Jewry, especially after the Holocaust, and he he really built up American Jewry. And number three, his wife died, in very sixty eight, I think sixty nine. It was a very very painful experience for him. He was incredibly attached to her, and, and um, he never really recovered. And uh, he lived in a crisis mode the rest of his life. And he, you know, he, he says at some point that, um, you know, that we had this dream of going together to Israel. And I, I, he couldn't imagine going without her. Okay, so that was, you know, he, he lived by his daughter. He, like, hardly... He moved into his daughter's place. Like he didn't. The Rub wasn't interested in. He didn't like paint his house on Sundays and garden. Like he was like, he was sitting and learning and teaching in his whole life. And so, so it was. He was really uh, in mourning after the passing of his wife. So Tov, we'll stop here. Uh, we'll continue Bezrat Hashem next week. Shkoch everybody. Okay.